This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and thank you for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. New episodes are available every Thursday to stream or download. Make sure you tap or click the subscribe button to stay updated. Today we're taking a trip back into horticultural history as we explore how garden design and visiting gardens became one of the social pursuits for upper-class men and women in the 18th century. It's a passion that many of us may enjoy today, visiting historical sites, gazing at the carefully crafted landscapes, and maybe even picking up a few ideas for our own gardens. But were the garden tourists of the Georgian era anything like us? Well, to answer that question and others, we're joined by English Heritage Landscape Advisor Emily Parker and PhD researcher Jemima Hubbardsey. Jemima, take us back to the Georgian period, first of all. What sort of person was able to visit gardens as this hobby? Well, you really needed to have lots of leisure time. So, I mean, at the beginning of the Georgian period, it, it was a really, really elite exercise. It was sort of a lot of dilettantes showing up at each other's houses and wanting to look at their vast collections. But as the 18th century progressed, uh, roads did improve and travel did become a bit more accessible. So it increasingly became more of a sort of middle-class pursuit. They became known as, as the polite tourist. The bottom line really being that you needed to have your own transport, um, which was still quite costly, and you needed the leisure time to go and go country house visiting all summer, really. And it was a summer season pursuit, effectively. One wouldn't do this necessarily in other seasons. No, no. I mean, I think just as today, you want to see place in when the weather's good. And there are quite a few accounts of if it's raining, that people really can't see very much at all and have a bit of a horrible time of it. So you want to enjoy it when the sun's out and you can see all the gardens at their best, really. Yes, in full bloom with all that colour. Was it a habit, a hobby that was predominantly done by women or...? No, just as today, really, people would go uh, visiting with their friends, their family. If you look at surviving prints, you can see people going with their children, taking their dogs. So in many respects, they're not dissimilar to the sorts of us visiting today, really. I had the sense of it being quite snooty and upper class. But actually, from what you're describing, it sounds quite similar to how we might experience an English heritage property or garden today. It's quite open to everyone. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, in terms of, I don't think it was particularly according to gender and people did visit with their families, but you still needed to be able to really have the leisure time and the education to really understand what's going on in a garden as well. So it's not really as maybe open as it is today. It was still really for the middling classes upwards. But yeah, you did have men and women visiting together often. Okay, we'll talk about some of the documentary evidence relating to this hobby later. But what was the purpose of garden visiting apart from pleasure? Particularly for the middle classes, you really wanted to go to improve your own sense of taste. So the idea was that by, I suppose, a bit like, you know, visiting today in some respects, that by visiting beautiful gardens, you you would be inspired and you'd also have a have a sense of what looked right and, and how things ought to be. So the idea was you could go home and try and recreate it as best you could at home so really you you would want to try and visit as many gardens as possible to be able to do this and to be able to make proper comparisons as well so I suppose it's the equivalent of how we might buy a magazine or a newspaper 
with a pull-out garden section or something that because they didn't necessarily exist one would actually go and experience gardens for ourselves in order to get to get ideas it's a bit like going around a showroom i suppose you're depending on the people with all the um, the land and gardens and their gardening skills and their paid gardeners and landscape designers to sort of show you how to do it is is that sort of accurate representation yeah i think so and you could buy guidebooks but they were it's maybe not quite as it was today and that they started off as being almost of collectors items and then around the mid 18th century you've got some more, more these enterprising places like stowe they started to produce guidebooks that were a little bit cheaper and people could buy. And the advantage as well with a guidebook is that it may well also provide translations for you if there are inscriptions in the landscape. So you'd have some chance of trying to work out what the intended meaning was when you were going around, because unless you were a gentleman who'd been on the grand tour, you probably weren't fluent in Latin. So it did mean that it it helped gardens to be more accessible as well for the majority of the sort of polite tourists who'd, who'd come and visit. I see. Well, let's look at some of the practicalities of trying to be this sort of garden hobbyist type person, visiting gardens of the landed elite. How does one actually go about that? If you want to go to a country house and ask the owner if you can just drop by and have a quick look round. <laughs> well, it was quite chaotic, actually, because people just turned up which could be really annoying for the owners. Actually, Horace Walpole, who had Strawberry Hill, there's an account of him being really, really annoyed because three people turn up just as he's about to have dinner. I mean, he's really cross. He's then got to go and show them around. And equally, actually, you could turn up and and you could just be turned away if, if the owner didn't feel like letting you have a look around. So it really was quite hit and miss. And although in time, I mean, Sir Horace Walpole, for instance, was one who actually did implement a ticketing system because he wanted to try and regulate visitors a little bit and, and keep them within certain visiting hours. And, you know, he hated children, didn't want them to be going and touching all of his nice possessions. But most of the time, it was just a case of showing up and trying your luck and seeing if you can get shown round or not. It surprises me as, more, as well that the owners were happy to show people around. You might expect that someone who's got lots of money, lots of land, is quite protective of their asset. It would really depend on who you were, in that I think you'd have to be of of pretty high status yourself to be shown around by the owner. And if you were, then it was considered a, a real privilege, because a lot of the time what you'd normally expect would be a tour from the housekeeper or another servant in the house and that they'd not necessarily been trained in in the collections or or what was there so I mean some of the time servants really did just sort of make things up as they went along and tourists would sort of go along because they just wanted to look at the collections and and what was there so really if you were being shown around by the owner it it was a real mark of favour Otherwise, you just have to sort of make do with whoever was around to show you and, you know, whatever they might happen to know about the collection or not. You mentioned this one gentleman, this Horace Walpole at Strawberry Hill, had a ticketing system eventually. Would it be expected for visitors to pay the owner for their time or bring them a gift or something like that? So it's usually the housekeeper or the servants that you'd pay for the trouble of of showing you round. Really with the owners, if if you were the sort of class of person who was being shown around by the owner, it was more of a courtesy and sort of respect for your status and who you were. So, for instance, there's Lady Elizabeth Anson, who she'd actually been up in Scarborough because they had the, the spa town there. And on her way back down, when she was going back to Staffordshire again, 
the roads around Thursk were impassable, so she actually had to stay at, at Duncan Park in Helmsley. But because she was very well connected, she was actually shown around, she was able to stay for dinner. She was really a sort of guest of honour, but that's largely because she was married to an admiral and her father was the Lord Chancellor. You you wouldn't have just expected that for, you know, for most of us passing through they'd have probably just turned most of us away. So it really was depending on who you were and and your status, whether you'd be shown around and allowed to stay or or be entertained. How would other people not like her be able to be a garden visitor, travel around, find accommodation, do their garden seeing and then then head head back home? How, How would they sort of arrange all this? So actually, as the tourist industry actually picked up in the Georgian period, Lots of inns did start to shoot up around the famous tourist destinations. But again, it was a little bit chaotic in the days before booking.com because it would just be whether the inn had enough space for you. And sometimes people have to go on for several miles trying to find an inn where they can actually stay. You'd often hear about it through friends if they'd visited or you might be able to try and read about it in a travel guide, but it's not really as organised as today when we probably plan a lot more carefully, whereas I think most Georgian tourists would just try their luck, have a go, hope there's an inn, hope the roads are okay, and go through quite a lot for the privilege of, of seeing a garden. Fascinating. So they wouldn't necessarily have written a letter to the local innkeeper or a couple of inns to find out if they could reserve a, a room in order to plan their trip. They would just chance it. Yep. Fascinating. <laughs> Which is a bit frightening, I think, for most of us today when we like to plan everything so much. Yes, definitely. How long were people away then visiting if they were a garden visitor? So often people would visit in the summer months. Um, so you could actually be away for months at a time. And what people would really try and do was just try and cram in as many visits as, as you could while you were in the area. So a bit like how someone with a family might do a few English heritage sites today journey up the country or something and uh, take in a few sites just as they might have done as a garden visitor really. Yeah exactly I think it was just particularly because travel was getting better but it was still quite difficult so if you were actually going to all of that effort of making the journey you would really try and make the most of trying to see what you could and and making the most of the effort of actually traveling. Yes. So would visitors have been entertained if they were greeted by the host of the property with tea and cake, perhaps? I think uh, if you were incredibly lucky, um, but I I think, again, it probably goes back to if you were if you were the right sort of class of tourist or if you were known to the owner or you were were deemed worthy enough, then they may well entertain you. But otherwise, they weren't particular tea rooms or anything like you'd have today. So you'd sort of have to try and plan either bring something with you or sometimes I've come across accounts where visitors complain of being very hungry because they couldn't find any inns and they couldn't find anywhere to go and end up being quite miserable actually by the end. (laughs) (laughs) And these are all in, in written accounts obviously. How were these written accounts of these garden visits shared? Usually through letters. So you'd either, um, when you're writing your letters to your friends, um, you just maybe add a few lines in about the garden you've just been visiting. And this is quite important because actually given travel is still not that easy to do, it's still not that accessible. So your friend may well actually not have a chance to visit that garden. So this may well be the closest they get to actually experience it for themselves is, is reading your account. So 
people do think it's quite important to pass this on to friends. And some people actually even wrote their own travel diaries that were then circulated to friends. And that's actually how William Gilpin, who's now famous for publishing his picturesque tours, he first circulated his works by giving them to friends and then friends of friends. And then by the time they'd been circulated several times, he decided he may as well just publish his tours. I can see a development there from sort of private letter writing between friends to find out what the latest trends are in horticulture and garden design to something a bit more commercial where it's becoming a bit more published. I mean, were any of these critiques published in periodicals, magazines, guidebooks, I think you mentioned? Yes. So with guidebooks, what they were really trying to do was to advertise the gardens. And and so particularly if you look at things like Benton Seeley's guidebooks for Stowe, he's really trying to encourage the middling classes to visit to improve their own taste. But you're not really going to get much of a critique in published guides because they really want people to come and visit. So it's more in private letters where people are actually going to be a little bit more honest about what they think about the gardens or even the owners, particularly if they were turned away and then people are quite bitter when they put pen to paper and talk about it to friends. So you do have this difference in the intended audience and how critical somebody might be, because otherwise, if it's going for a larger audience, you might have to be quite careful in what you say and try not to offend the owner or or their garden. I see. So would you say that these were largely private affairs where the accounts are written down and shared between people rather than being published? I think you have a combination of both, really, in that some people would buy a guidebook and then use that to try and go round. But just as today, you might buy a guidebook and then decide not to follow the guidebook. You might take some of its advice or some of what it says, but not all of it. And sometimes people would actually take their friends' letters as a guidebook. So it really depends on the individual whether you want to really go for the guidebook or whether you just want to choose your own path or maybe pick up on things that your friend has said to you instead. So it's it's a combination of public and private, I think. Did it become quite a serious thing for some aficionados, shall we say? Did it become a bit like a restaurant food critic? Were there people like that at all in this era? Oh, I, I think so. The thing to have in the 18th century was taste. And I think if you really want to insult somebody, the thing you say they don't have is taste. <laughs> so people are usually trying to you know, really prove that they know what they're talking about. And so actually, garden visiting is one of the key ways of showing your education, of showing that you have a discerning eye, is to then explain this to your friends and, and to, to share what you're seeing with, with them, really. So yeah, I think there were definitely lots of people wanting to prove that they all had taste and showing that through their letters. Well, let's bring in Emily now. We'll explore a bit more of the documentary evidence relating to garden visiting. Henrietta Howard's property, Marble Hill in Twickenham in southwest London, which we've covered on a previous recent podcast, episode 165, was this grand Palladian house that looked over the River Thames. But Emily, how was Marble Hill described by visitors at the time? So Marble Hill is described in sort of a variety of different ways by different people. And I've got kind of two quite nice examples of that, which I think link quite nicely into some of those themes that Jemima was talking about, about who was visiting and how we know about why they were visiting. So one of these people is a guy called Benjamin Everard. He was only 19 when he visited Marble Hill in 1755. And he was the son of a, a merchant, so from Kings Lynn in Norfolk. So he's very much of these kind of middling classes. And as far as we know, he had absolutely no personal connection to Marble Hill. And that's 
really interesting in terms of how we research gardens because obviously I found that by doing a sort of a keyword search on a database and you can come up with these sort of random visitors who as far as we have know have no connection to Marble Hill but you can find them now because we can do masses of sort of data trawl at once so it's quite interesting that we now get these very different accounts that we might not have found before and when he's talking about Marble Hill he's talking about this alongside other gardens that he's visiting at the time so he's sort of on a sort of tour of sort of the Twickenham area we don't know how he gained access to the garden he may have just turned up as we were dis- Jemima was discussing and he may have been shown around by the gardener which is quite common in this period but in this letter to his father he wrote how the gardens are pretty he talks about the wilderness and shrubberies and how they're in the modern taste and then he also talks about the sort of extremes and the failing fashions and how as he puts it, straight lines no longer please. So he's talking about how this sort of this sort of na- more naturalistic gardens such as Marble Hill are coming together. And it's interesting to see how he uses his visit to the garden and his sort of this in this private letter to discuss his taste and sort of the fashion of the garden, which links back into what Jemima was saying about these being very much sort of educational and sort of gaining taste and chances to give your opinions on that taste. So I think it's quite a nice interesting example which is very much sort of unconnected to Marble Hill from a very sort of middle class background which just shows how people may have been visiting in sort of the mid 18th century. Yeah so when exactly was he writing this uh, Benjamin Everard? He visited in 1755 which is when the gardens are sort of in their prime at Marble Hill as well so it would have been a very good time to sort of visit and have a look around. There's this other person as well who writes about Marble Hill a lady called Henrietta Pye. Who's she? Yeah, so Henrietta Pye, she's also known as um, Jail Pye, and she is interesting because she publishes an account of the gardens. This is a published account, and it's in a book which talks about all the houses and gardens in Twickenham in 1760. So she describes all the gardens on that sort of stretch of the Thames, and she describes how the garden is very pleasant. There's an alley of flowering shrubs, and talks about the grotto, which is one of the defining features of Marble Hill. And this description, along with other 19th century accounts formed the research that went to the recent restoration which we talked about on the previous podcast but the introduction to Pye's account of the houses and gardens is particularly interesting particularly when thinking about female garden visitors so Pye wrote that she had observed that ladies in general visit these places as the young gentlemen visit foreign parts and this link back to the grand tour about how men are being able to go in the grand tour and women aren't and so she goes on to say These little excursions, being commonly the only travels permitted to our sex, and the only way we have of becoming at all acquainted with the progress of the arts. So she's very much capturing the idea that sort of women particularly might be using garden visiting as an opportunity to sort of develop their taste. And she's using this account and this guide sort of guidebook that she's writing to give women and others that kind of guidance of the taste of that particular area. So it's quite interesting that it links into some of those themes that Jemima was talking about earlier. Benjamin Everard and Henrietta Pye, who were these visitors? They seem a little bit different in terms of their approach. Yeah, so Benjamin, I was to say, was a sort of middle class. His his father was a merchant. Henrietta Pye is interesting because she is sort of a garden writer in her own. So she would have been not sort of the elite of society, but she's very much someone who's writing has their own capacity and the leisure time to write their own account. So they are different. And it's quite interesting to see how those two people are visiting Marble Hill at very similar times. Their accounts are only five years apart. 
but how it shows the kind of breadth of the garden visitors that you would have had. And, you know, we don't know how Henrietta Howard, who was the woman who owned Marble Hill, would have felt about Henrietta Pye's sort of written account, but it was published in her lifetime, so she would have presumably read it. So there's also those kind of considerations about what the owner would have thought about how people were writing about their gardens at the time, especially in these published materials that aren't published directly by the owner. Mm. Let's move on to another property then, which had some visitors. This is Audley End near Saffron Walden in Essex. Are there any accounts from the 1700s or later from there? So we have a sort of early 19th century accounts from, from Audley End. And one of them is from Prince Hermann von Fuchler. Uh, he, he was a German nobleman. And he's famous for his garden design and as the author of a number of books concentrating on his travel. So he essentially writes sort of travel accounts. And he toured England several times and he was inspired by the fashionable garden designs that he saw there, which then influenced the design of his garden at Moscow, which is then in Prussia. And so on one of these tours in 1826, he visited Audley End and he later published a description of the garden in one of his books. So particular interest was his description of a part of the garden, which we call the Elysian Garden, which he greatly admired and in which he includes the lists of things he describes. So he describes how there's rare and splendid plants and flower beds and how they're of every form and colour and they group themselves most beautifully. Wasn't there another person as well, a chap called John Player? This is another interesting one again. So John Player, he published a book in 1845 called Sketches in Essex. And this was after a visit to Audley End in which he described the garden for his readers. So as Jemima was sort of saying that in the 19th century, there was an ever-increasing tourist market encouraging the proliferation of guidebooks and travel memoirs. And in addition, at this period, there's an increasing interest in local history and antiquarianism. So books such as the one that John Player published, which was called Sketches in Essex, often became a mixture of these two interests, highlighting sort of historical features and as well as being a potential travel guide. So at the beginning of Player's book, he describes how he indulges a hope that still some work will better suit it to the purpose of a local guard shall be published. But until then, he hopes that his book will become a sort of humble substitute for that. So it's kind of a, a sort of history, but also could be used as a local guide. And although the book was published less than 20 years in the previous account we were just talking about, he describes the same garden, so the Elysian Garden, as being broken up and gone, but how it was pleasant in its earlier days. So it's also being able to piece these kind of garden accounts and garden visiting things together in order to be able to see how gardens developed over time. So in those 20 years, we now know that that particular part of the garden, the Elysian Garden, had been completely gone. So they're also useful documents from kind of a garden restoration perspective, which is a lot of what my job involves, to understand how gardens changed and developed over time. Absolutely. I think if we didn't have these documents, your work as a landscape advisor for English heritage could be a little bit more difficult. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Yeah, just a bit. (laughs) As a historian who's looking at these documents occasionally, do you find that the descriptions are vivid or do you find them a bit sort of conservative and a bit, I don't know, how, how are they? Usually frustratingly fleeting. So the kind of details I would be interested in is sort of what plants are planted where and, and the kind of details if you're planning to do restore an area or to conserve an area are used as sort of, sort of not 
exactly there. Usually it's more like, oh, we had a lovely time. Wasn't it beautiful? It was really nice, which are lovely and really nice to get a feel for what the garden was like and how it was experienced. But it doesn't really give you the kind of detail of, oh, this new bit of planting had just been done or they'd just put up 400 oaks or whatever. So they can be frustratingly sort of vague, (laughs) which is a bit annoying at times, but it does give you a nice sense of how people used and visited the gardens at the time. They should have sent poets, shouldn't they? Mm, They should have done. And I think some of Jemima's things she's going to talk about, about Rest Park a bit later, kind of do go into a bit more because they are particularly interested in, in design, which perhaps it depends what kind of visitor you're getting as well. Yes, I think so. I think so. It's all about taste, isn't it? Really, and mm. and, and the level of your aesthetic and and, yes, and your and artfulness. Yes, how interested you are. Yeah. Yes, if you can't express yourself artfully about the subject, which is um, a very artistic thing, then I think mm. uh, you're sort of in trouble, really, because you need to be able to show off that you know what you're talking about uh, <laughs> and to other people. Well, let's look at another property. This is up in the north of England, Belsay Hall in Northumberland, in the northeast. We've covered this in a previous episode as well in quite a lot of detail. So there's episodes 57 and 96 to listen back to if you're interested. Belsay Hall was built by Sir Charles Monk, but rather than people visiting his property, he actually went on tour to other people's gardens, didn't he? Yeah, so Sir Charles Monk was the ultimate sort of uh, early 19th century gentleman who went on his tour. So he toured in Europe, particularly in Greece and in Sicily. But he also took tours in England. So in between 1825 and 1826, he undertook a tour of northern England. And he recorded all about this in these kind of journals or travel diaries. And he visited many gardens as part of this tour. And we know that Sir Charles was particularly interested in garden design after what he'd been laying out at Belsay and particularly interested in plants. So it's not surprising that gardens became part of his tour. And some of the places that he visited included Chatsworth House and Wentworth House, York Museum Gardens and Duncan Park. He also visited a plant nursery in York, which is unsurprising as he was interested in plants. But what is particularly, I think, is quite nice about these accounts is that Sir Charles is quite critical on many of the gardens that he visits. And it's showing that this was a diary shaped by his own taste and his opinions and never meant to be read. And what's also quite nice is because we know a lot about what Sir Charles was doing in his own garden and his opinions on his own garden, we can kind of start to see how his ideas and tastes were reflected in the gardens that he saw as well. You've mentioned a few properties there, Chatsworth House, Wentworth House, York Museum Garden, Duncan Park. York is obvious to me, but uh, what about those other properties? Whereabouts are they? So Chatsworth House is in Derbyshire and Tatsov is a particularly good example of him describing specific elements in the garden. So uh, he talks about the cascade, for example, which he says, you cannot admire anything so artificial and it is unworthy of the place. But he does talk more positively about other things, saying that Tatsov struck him as the only place that he could actually become comfortable in and enjoy living in. So it is sort of a double-edged sword. He found things that he liked at Chatsworth and things that he didn't as well. What's Um, the cascade? Is that a, a waterfall? Yeah, so it's essentially, so, uh, it's still there today. It's uh, one of the most kind of famous features of Chatsworth. So it's, it's a stepped cascade. And as Sir Charles Monk says, it's very much a sort of artificial structure. And then the water sort of cascades down it. I see. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very impressive. <laughs> I think it's very impressive. But obviously it's not into Sir Charles Monk's taste. And it's very much not an early 19th century taste that would be fashionable then either, because it's from an earlier period of the garden. Mm. Wasn't he more a fan of the more naturalistic settings that he'd seen on his tours in Greece and uh, Italy. 
Yeah, so his garden at Belsay is what we call like the picturesque style, which is very much this sort of naturalistic landscapes that are sort of supposed to look like nature, but they're actually sort of carefully planned. So something like the Cascade, which is very much a sort of artificial feature, would have not perhaps not impressed him as much as some of the other gardens that he visited. Which, of course, included Wentworth House and Duncan Park. Where are both those properties? So Wentworth House, which we now is now known as Wentworth Woodhouse, is in Yorkshire near Rotherham. And here he was particularly interested and impressed by the plants, describing those in the greenhouse as good specimens of rare and new plants. Duncan Park is also in Yorkshire. And there it's interesting because we get the fact that he spoke to the gardener, who apparently complained to him that neither Lord or Lady Feversham, who were the owners, were interested themselves about the gardens or bought plants. So that's very much a sort of scathing account of someone who's an owner who's not particularly interested in, in their garden. And Charles Monk felt that you could see that in how the garden was laid out. Duncan's particularly interesting because Sir Charles also criticises the architecture, which was in a sort of Grecian style. And obviously, we know that Sir Charles Monk was particularly fascinated by Grecian architecture because he builds Belsay Hall in that style. So he describes how it was far from correct, although he did admit that it was agreeable to the eye. So you get this interesting juxtaposition of him. It's very much an account of what he sees, what he likes, what he doesn't like. And he's just putting it all together down on paper so he can look back at it and think about it another time. He seems quite pernickety. <laughs> yeah, and that's very much what Sir Charles Monk comes across as in his sort of diaries. He's very much seems to be sort of a detailed person. When he's building Belsay Hall, he measures sort of the buildings in Greece and sort of copies them exactly. So he's very much a sort of exacting person who's looking at that detail. So I think that kind of comes across in these diaries of the other places that he's visiting. I completely agree. And you can also see it when you walk around Belsay Hall because it is very symmetrical in many places. It's, it's got those classical features as well, the stone. Yeah. Um, and there's lots of detail. Like the detailing at Belsay is very, you know, from the sort of the steps to the sort of the gatehouses and things, it's all to the same style by the one sort of man. So it's very much a secular style that he's going for. Yes, and it's got his handwriting all over it, really. Mm, exactly. It? Well, let's go down south again. We're back in Bedfordshire this time, talking about Rest Park, which we visited in episode 45. And Jemima and I did an episode at Rest Park. Who lived here, Jemima? So from 1740, it was owned by Jemima Marchness Gray and her husband, Philip York. They were a pretty intellectual couple and they often entertained their literary friends for long summers at rest where they'd all read and write together in the gardens. So actually the gardens were a really, really important part of socialising with their friends, really. And it's quite nice as well that you, you've got this connection to Rest Park and the lady shares your name. <laughs> Yeah, it's a nice, it's a slightly odd coincidence. But yes, no, I'm, I'm definitely referring to her and not, not about myself in the third person. Just <laughs> so did Jemima, yeah, of course. So did Jemima Gray travel to other people's gardens to get ideas for her own at Rest Park? Oh, yes. She and Philip loved their uh, country house tourism. They're sort of basically away most summers, having a nosy in other people's gardens and writing lots and lots about it. And actually, particularly their tour to Staffordshire in 1748 was particularly designed so they could get new ideas for Rest Park, because by this point, they'd had rest for nearly 10 years. They were making quite a lot of changes to the gardens, or they were certainly planning changes. And so they wanted to get as many ideas as they could. And what's quite nice is that they clearly 
discuss the gardens at length together and their observations often show that they'd been having conversations around what they were seeing, what they enjoyed seeing. And I think Philip actually learned quite a lot from Jemima because she was the one who was really educated in garden design. She'd been taught by the garden designer Thomas Wright. And actually, when Philip was about to go traveling with Jemima in 1748, his friend actually said, you know, make sure that you write down Jemima's observations because her her picturesque eye will discover many worthies for your traveling book. So it's quite nice that actually he was learning from her, I think, and she had so much expertise to share. Yes, I suppose once you've done quite a bit of visiting yourself, you'll acquire some knowledge and then people will start to come to visit your gardens. Did you welcome guests to Rest Park? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, so a rest park wasn't maybe um, a famous public garden like maybe Stowe was, but it certainly did have a reputation. People did want to come and visit it, particularly in the late 1740s, because Philip and Jemima actually around this time built this it looks quite strange to us if we go today, but they had this, what they called the Mithraic altar in the gardens at rest, which is actually enormous. If you stand next to it, it towers above you. It was a bit of a mystery because it has these two inscriptions on either side. And so they had academics from Cambridge coming to try and work it out. They had antiquarians from all over the country, all flocking to Rest Park to try and understand what this thing actually was. Yes, because we should probably explain that uh, the, the background to this. So it's kind of right at the end of the gardens. If you're looking at a plan and you've got the main building in the bottom of, say, like an A4 sheet of paper, it's in the top right-hand corner in a clearing, effectively, isn't it? Surrounded by trees, and it's about, I suppose, nine to ten feet tall, something like that. And it looks like a giant plinth. And as you say, it's got this description around the side with, is it flint on the sides of the um, stone? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yes. Um, uh, but it's very, it's very sort of classical looking, isn't it? And it's got this mysterious writing. But the writing actually is, I believe, gibberish, is it not? So one side is um, the cuneiform on one side they'd actually got from this book of travels. Now, if you look at the book of travels, it actually takes you on this little bit of a dead end because the author then admits that he'd copied out the inscription but had no idea what it said. So wrote it down, hoping he could find a traveller who could tell him but can't find anyone. So basically, if you'd gone to all that effort, you'd go, oh, well, so it still doesn't mean anything. And then on the other side, there's actually some ancient Greek, which does loosely translate as Cleander's dedication to the god Mithras. But none of this actually means anything to you if you don't know about the Athenian letters, which Philip and his friends had written at Cambridge in the late 1730s. And it was essentially historical fan fiction set during the Peloponnesian Wars. And Cleander was one of the main characters who was a Persian spy residing in Athens. So that's really why we've got the cuneiform on one side and the Greek on the other, because it's really meant to reflect Cleander's own quite sort of hybrid identity that he's writing to other members of the Persian court, but he's also really influenced by Athens and, and enjoys looking at the different cultures and religious practices and everything that's happening in, in Athens while he's there. But basically, for visitors coming to Rest Park, they wouldn't have known that because the Athenian letters wasn't published at all. So it was really, you'd have to be an inner member of Philip and Jemima's circle to actually understand the reference. So 
although the altar was physically accessible and people did visit it and they, they tried to work out what it meant, it wasn't actually intellectually accessible. And I think that's sort of the key difference with the Mithraic Glade at Rest Park. Yeah, so we, we discussed this when we were at Rest Park um, a couple of years ago, didn't we? You described it again as this historic fan fiction because it's based on a story that they were this small group knew about. But um, was it an in-joke or were they actually trying to tease visitors Whereas actually, it was actually a modern reproduction, effectively, this altar. Yeah, and they definitely enjoyed teasing people about it. And that when it's first put up in the gardens, they actually love basically all of the letters between Philip and Jemima and their friends of them just observing different people trying to understand it. One of their friends actually went back several times trying to work out the meaning of the altar. And of course, they didn't tell them what it meant. Jemima actually had quite a lot of fun teasing an academic who'd come down to try and work out what it meant. And she was tempted to tell him that there were sacrifices on it and that it was built by giants just because it was written on a stone. And so people actually took it for a genuine antiquity. And there was this culture of bringing things back and you know these curious objects from the Grand Tour. So people had good reason to believe it might be real. But of course, this was a bit of a joke that they did enjoy playing on people really and just seeing if they got close to working it out. But it was also quite a personal feature in the gardens as well, because it related back to the Athenian letters, which was a very sort of private endeavour between friends. And actually, when the altar was built, one of their friends did actually say that he suspected the altar was coined there for the sake of absent friends. So... I think the altar is also partly dedicated to Philip and Jemima's literary friendships and is dedicated to the, the days where they'd read and write together in the gardens at Rest Park. Mm, yes, I think that's quite a nice sort of touch, really. So whilst it was a bit of a joke, it was also quite a sort of serious and very large, solid keepsake, really. Yeah, because it is so enormous I think it is quite difficult to really know how to interpret it because and you know you you if you go there you could understand you think well was there a sacrifice committed there and, and the, the coterie do like to sort of play around with the suggestion that well there might have been a sacrifice or you know there might have been a few druids around so it really plays into people's ideas of just trying to just see how far people might be able to believe things really. I think that's really interesting it, it gets us an insight into Jemima Gray's mind. She's um, she's quite serious about her gardening by the sounds of things. She wants to collect all these ideas. She's quite happy to have guests around, but she also wants to have a bit of fun with it. So I think that's quite interesting, really. Um, she seems quite a sort of kooky character. <laughs> <laughs> I think that group of friends were. they, And they sound enormous fun, to be honest. But yeah, they do sort of like to joke around about possible sacrifices. And I've, I've sometimes got a little bit worried reading the letters, but I, I conclude that they're just joking around. Yeah, OK. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> Looking back on all this garden visiting, garden design, practical joking as well, broadly speaking, how does garden design and taste change over the 17 and 1800s? That's a really big topic and something we could probably do a whole podcast on on our own if we wanted to. I think what particularly is interesting is that we start off at the beginning of the sort of 18th century as more formal gardens, perhaps. And by the sort of mid early 19th century, with the gardens are very much becoming something that's supposed to at least look, although perfectly designed, naturalistic. So in that hundred years, a whole sort of swathe of garden change takes place. But we can sort of chart that through these sort of guided garden visits and these uh, counts of gardens and those guidebooks. 
And I think what's particularly interesting is not necessarily what the design is becoming, but how people are responding to that and thinking and growing their taste. Garden design history is my background, so I'm particularly interested in how the gardens changed over that time. But these accounts and these sort of letters give us the chance to understand how people experience those landscapes and how people experience the experience of visiting them changed over time as well. So they should kind of be seen in tandem with the design, uh, changing of design. And going back to that documentary evidence, Emily, you mentioned earlier that the uh, descriptions were quite fleeting and not very detailed. Um, are there any really good descriptions by poets, uh, real writers, uh, you know, that sort of thing that really give us a good historical insight, both from a factual perspective, but also from an artistic side? Yeah, I think sadly for English heritage, we don't necessarily have, I can't think of anything in our collection that really does sort of give us that sort of step-by-step account of what they look like. Obviously, the guidebooks that are written for specific sites, like places like Stowe, which is the really famous one, they do. They take you on a tour of that garden and point out every temple and every feature and explain what it supposedly meant. So things like that can be very useful for sort of garden historians, but it depends what kind of accounts you sort of end up with and how detailed they are. And it just depends on the particular site in question of what you kind of get. I mean, what goes alongside this is obviously people sort of sketching and painting on their visits, which we haven't talked about. So for example, you know, people would go with their sketchbook and draw what they're seeing as well, which once accompanied by their written accounts can become incredibly useful for sort of understanding garden design. So it's not necessarily just the words, it's the kind of the paintings and things that go along with it as well. Yes, and incredibly useful for anyone you're trying to communicate those ideas to in the time period, because just to get a fleeting description of it was lovely is not going to be very useful and it's not a great conversation starter, is it? So No. And Sir Charles Monk particularly would sketch little details on his tours that he wanted to remember. So he'd sketch the architrade on a Greek temple or something, or something that he wanted to be able to sort of replicate and take home. So there's kind of those little tiny little details that they're also sort of gathering that you can kind of start to see in the design as well. So how long did this garden visiting hobby and the socialising aspect as well last as a pursuit? I don't think it has died out yet, has it? People were doing it before the 18th century, uh, just in a much more limited capacity. I think people have always had an interest in seeing what the neighbours are doing, understanding what the person that, you know, what other people who are supposedly got good taste are doing in their gardens. And by the sort of Victorian period later, for example, travel is so much easier. You can go by train, you can visit several places in a sort of week. So there's like the, the kind of tourism becomes very much easier. So there's definitely more of a kind of understanding of that. At Rest Park, for example, when Earl de Grey owns the house in the 19th century, there's a, a gate which was called Stranger's Gate, which is one of the entrances to the garden. That's somewhere where if you're a garden visitor, you could ring a bell and be admitted by a servant. And the gate is far enough away from the house that it doesn't disturb the owner if they're in residence. But someone from the sort of service will pick it up and sort of let you know if you're allowed in or not. So it's definitely a sort of... a an experience that doesn't end in the Georgian period and definitely extends into Victorian period. And you get things like pleasure gardens, which are particularly built for public consumption. And then you have the rise of public parks, obviously, which then takes some of these ideas from private ownership and turn them into places where the masses can visit. And that's when the sort of the working class garden visiting becomes much more sort of everyone can go and visit their local public park for free. 
Yes, absolutely. And as you mentioned, visiting gardens and gardening are still popular pastimes today across society. So what do you think that the people we've discussed contributed to the culture of gardening and garden design? I guess they were the pioneers, really. Yeah, I think particularly people like um, Jemima at Rest and Sir Charles at Belsay were very much on that sort of forefront of taste. They are gathering information from other gardens, they are commenting on other gardens, and then they're bringing it back to their own designs and building and expanding on that. So contributing to sort of the garden design changes as we understand it today. But yeah, in the same way that you'd sort of visit you know, local gardens or garden centres to get ideas, people are doing that in in their own sort of way in the 18th century. If you had this interest, you you really wanted to design your own garden at your own property, would you just have to grow everything from seed or were there nurseries where you could actually go and purchase plants and have them bedded in? So in the 18th century, a lot of people were growing things from seed on site. So you get a lot of gardeners, you get a lot of people growing their own sort of shrubs and trees and plants and things. But yeah, you definitely end up with these kind of nursery gardens that become more prolific towards the end of the 18th century but there is local nurseries mainly gathered around places like London where you can get your plants and see things delivered if you're a very rich landowner and you have lots of connections people might be bringing things back from particular voyages so plant hunting expeditions all over the world and you might be on the kind of list of people who would get those particularly new specimens if you had friends, they might send you plants. You know, there's lots of different ways of getting hold of plants, but it's not as easy as visiting a garden centre like it would be today. Jemima, what's your thought then about um, these garden visitors? It sounds like something that started off as a very small private affair between friends really became almost the passion for gardening that we kind of see enjoyed by the masses today through various media, magazines, newspapers, TV programmes, podcasts, obviously. It seems like it all started from one little seed. Yeah, definitely. I think so. And I, and I think that the other thing that has sort of stayed throughout as well is I think that desire to sort of share the experience with somebody else that you want, either you want to visit a garden with a friend or you want to tell them all about what you've just been doing. I think I think that's desire to share and to you know, have our opinions on the places that we visit. I think that's still with us today as well, even if, you know, it's maybe updating your social media status as opposed to writing it in a letter to a friend. But I still think that the whole sort of sharing experience with friends is the sort of common denominator over time, I think. Yes. And who can resist as well going to an English heritage property or garden and taking a photo of some of the amazing flowers that are on display in the summer months and sharing that on a Twitter, Facebook or or Instagram feed just for people to enjoy. Because let's face it, not everyone will get to visit those places. And I think if you can share those things, share your passion, share your enjoyment, then that's good for everyone, really. I suppose it just goes to show that we're not that dissimilar from the people who were doing this a few hundred years ago, really. No, not at all. I think it's one of the things that actually I think makes them feel very relatable and not too far removed from us at all. And I think even this visiting of English Heritage Gardens is just another sort of development in the proto-hobby that was garden visiting, really. What do you think to that, Emily? Some of our most popular sites are our garden sites. So I think that that kind of idea of being something that is 
enjoyable from sort of an aesthetic and then you also get the history so garden visiting is particularly popular still today and our English heritage sites that have these sort of wonderful gardens are some of our most popular properties so I think that kind of you can kind of see that idea about gardens as places to enjoy and to experience sort of continues in the legacy of garden visiting today. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we're serving up another appetizing episode in our Feasts Through History series. People would have traveled with a whole coterie of attendants. And then, of course, their horses. You could probably estimate twice as many horses as people coming. So it's a big deal. Thanks for listening. See you next time.